0: Hey folks, in this TWIP Throwback Thursday rerun episode, I sat down with Pi Jersa, the visionary behind Impossible Things and their revolutionary Lightroom plugin and software as a service that's changing the game for photographers. In this discussion, Pi shared his insights on the balance between artisanship and automation and whether he thinks technology complements or compromises the true essence of photography. Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of This Week in Photo. I'm your host, Frederick Van Johnson. Today, uh, we have an impossible interview to take you through. (laughs) My friend, Mr. Pai Jersa, is on the line. He's on the hot seat to talk about his new venture, Impossible Things. Uh, And more, I think... The, the deeper level or the level deeper of this conversation is we're going to dive into what makes impossible things work and Pi's work in AI, artificial intelligence, and how that overall might be affecting photographers today and how it might affect photographers, professionals and amateurs in the future. So we're going to dive into all that in this fun pack, action filled episode of This Week in Photo. Pi Jersa, welcome to the show, man. How you doing? Thank you, my friend. You are so good at this. Am I? What are I you talking you,
1: about? Yeah, you you get the podcast voice going. I like it. I think turn it turned. Yeah, let's you, talk AI stuff.
0: You hear that, ladies and gentlemen? You hear this man of all people on the planet to to talk about a podcast voice? Pi, just say something like you know the rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane with the with the Pi jersey voice.
1: <laughs> what Was that <laughs> the rain in Spain falls what on a plane?
0: mainly on the plane mainly See? on the plane yeah where did you learn the, that one that's i don't know where that came from that's in my head from somewhere the rain in spain falls mainly on the plane like i think someone told me that you're supposed to say that a couple of times fast before you do any kind of performance to kind of loosen up all the I'm, I'm mechanisms use yeah
1: yeah sometimes it's hard to get your voice going like it's hard to it's hard to make your mouth move the way that you want it to that seems mm-hmm. like it would help
0: yeah. I, I have no problem with the mouth. One. The mouth movement is fine. It's the brain movement. that you're trying to match the two. <laughs> that's that's where that's where I go awry. Um but let's dive let's dive into this, man. I'm I'm really excited to talk about this. I am, as you know, we've talked offline. I am bullish and excited, uh maybe, you know, cautiously optimistic on AI and the future in all areas, from I don't know, self-driving to image recognition you know or facial recognition to mm-hmm. uh, software like like we're going to talk about here to diffusion methods to, diff- to actually create images from quote whole cloth to chat GPT affecting many industries all that stuff just feels very much like when I first when I first discovered Mozilla and Netscape back yeah. in the day you remember that feeling that you had when you're like yeah Okay, this this doesn't look great right now, but I could see where this this might go if they put things in place like commerce in this. And now look at us, you know, we've got trillion dollar companies that are based on just that little stuff, that Mozilla and Netscape, you know, from days ago. Let's start this conversation. I'm gonna talk about impossible things first. So so set the stage with an introduction to who Pyjursa is, and then give us kind of your elevator pitch on the software, impossible things.
1: Yeah. So, well, I guess for me, I do research and education. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's the simplest way to kind of say what I do, but I basically like to, I like to learn things, um, turn them into simple frameworks. and, And really what I'm doing is I'm creating something for myself first. And then I'm turning around and kind of creating education that that can hopefully help others, and we'll create business around each of these. So the first of these kind of started in the photo space with and jersey photography as a photography studio, mm-hmm. and then it went into photography education, and then development sources or development resources for for image development. And so impossible things is is under that kind of roof of like image development. So about I think it was like four maybe three or four years ago, we patented a process of uh, editing that we had called lighting condition based development. So it was basically kind of our our first step before AI. We didn't have the resources to go fully towards AI at the time. Um, and at that time, like only big companies really had those resources. Um, so we kind of went with this inner in between step of like, well, how could we treat images <clears throat> kind of like an AI might with patterns, but then make it simple for people to develop images so we came up with lighting condition based development and fast forward a few years we partnered up with develop to kind of blend that technology into image editing ai where now for like a a typical wedding photographer event photographer or, or portrait photographer your workflow is basically drop it into lightroom inside of lightroom classic we have a plugin you run the plugin and it'll basically edit every one of your images through AI directly inside of Lightroom. So you don't even have to leave Lightroom Classic, it just does it right there. And on top of that, it makes it actually uh, works with your own presets, it works with the develop library, the visual flow preset library. So it can work with like any presets that you're already using or like the favorites that we've kind of created through visual flow presets and through develop presets. So yeah, it, it's basically made it so let's say you finish shooting a wedding and you might spend, I don't know, like a an eight hour day. Usually you'd spend maybe two days editing. Now you go and run it through impossible things. And what was two days of editing becomes one hour of editing. You're basically reviewing and it, it gets everything 90, 95% there. And you're just basically making fine tuning adjustments and putting in signature edits. Mm-hmm. So it it's designed to like, just make photographers lives better. Like, How often do you hear photographers talk about like, well if i could just shoot more and work on my business more rather than edit and editing is such a big hassle it's like well do i hire somebody do i outsource it do i use other programs There's, there's not really uh, great solutions right now
0: so the the photographers and that's a great description by the way so the photographers out there that are using services like i don't know shoot.edit for example where for the folks that aren't familiar with it they you in your example, you go out, you shoot a wedding, you send these guys the drive or or however you want to get the, the media over to them. They have a profile established or maybe a couple of profiles for different kinds of things established and on file for you and the way that you shoot, they do the edit and send it back to you in, in different ways, right? It could be, I'm guessing, I've never used it, but I'm guessing you could get just the final images that are edited that, that you could take and then assemble into an album, or they could even take it a level further and build the album, do the album design, first draft, and all that stuff for you. So where, where yeah. does Impossible Things fit into that flow? Are you aiming to replace a shoot.edit with with artificial intelligence to streamline that workflow.
1: Yeah, well I I should say the guys at shoot are, are cool guys. So not this mm-hmm. isn't to yeah. um go after them particularly, but like the goal is to reinvent that entire process. So rather than sending your images to any editing company, rather than going and, you know, uh, right now other AI options they require you to like basically export as a catalog and reimport XMPs right now this integrates directly to Lightroom. So imagine just basically having, imagine having a editor that's a virtual editor plugged directly into Lightroom Classic and you don't have to worry about their hours, their time, nothing. You click what preset, what look you want them to edit with, additional features you'd like to add in, and you press go. In about a quarter second per image, it it completes each edit. And you can even add in like, you know, uh, basically you, you can add in like basic AI based retouching elements as well directly to Lightroom Classic. So like enhancing the subject, skin retouch, that kind of stuff directly into Lightroom Classic. So there is no need to export your catalog and send it to somebody else to edit. There is no need to, you know, hire somebody and train them manually because along with those looks, like with each preset, you can actually custom tune them to your like your own taste. So if you notice a a preset that you love to use is a little bit warm, it's a little bit cool, it's whatever, you just create a a custom tuning for that specific look and now it's tuned to your taste. And this is an editor that you can like literally just use. Like I'm always concerned with like our editing. In in the past, our editing staff, you don't wanna overwork them, right? With this, it's just like, I wanna do all this in this style. Oh, you know what? Actually, let's try this style and see if I, I like that better. For this, that you don't have to worry about giving them that task over and over again.
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and isn't isn't that the purpose overall? Generally speaking, about technology, right? It is to take complex, repetitive tasks and make them easy, so that you can, as the human, I guess, to, can go on and do other things. My my question, or that's one of the reasons for technology. Uh, my question that while you were talking that pops up is okay, so if we're we're off shifting that workflow or or introducing you know impossible things into the workflow and taking the human touch out of there, is it a case of impossible things is good enough? To replace a shoot edit or like companies, it's it's good enough to do that. So why not? Because you'll get speed benefits and and all and be, you know like you said, being able to tweak it and make it more personal and it's fast and you're not using any human resources or budget to do that. On the other side, you know, So is it good enough or is it markedly better than what a human could do? Like it's a no brainer. Swap this thing out and what you were getting from these other companies you're going to be surprised at what you can do in just milliseconds with impossible things. Like what, what does it, I know it's not binary, but what does it more skew towards being better or good enough? I like that.
1: You've kind of set me up perfectly with that question. Um, Mm -hmm. So I would say out of the box, we expect out of the the box for most users, it's going to blow away anything that they could do on their own or outsourcing companies in terms of, consistency in terms of quality in terms of flexibility to be able to edit in any style without having to like retrain somebody else or having to like out of the gate it's going to be better um and so it kind of eliminates at least when it comes to like we use this so again, I, I kind of go back to the things that we develop are for ourselves, right? So mm-hmm. in all the education that I do and all the resources that I create in the companies that I build, it's always for ourselves first. And then we we look to see if there's need in in the marketplace. Well, this one piece of, of software has basically allowed Linear's Photography, a, a company that edits over a million images a year to basically go from at one point we had eight full time editors like back in the heyday when we were just just not enough processing power, too many images. We had eight editors that were editing through all the shooters uh, images down to one. So today we have one full-time editing t- uh, editor that basically all they do is they run things through impossible things, um, they review, and then they put in our signature edits for each um, e- each shoot. Now, now that one editor, keep in mind that like, a, a studio that processes over a million images a year. We're shooting three hundred to three hundred fifty weddings a year, right? So that's a that's a ton of images that are going through. So as a solo studio, if you're doing 20 30 40 I mean, we're talking about like that's not even you you could just do it all yourself. Like you you see the images, um, you, you spend an hour per catalog, like fine tuning, and and after you get the results back, your work is done. So basically for most people this eliminates the need to hire anybody for editing it it eliminates the need to sit there for you know 20 30 hours a week after you shoot and instead you're you're quickly getting some things done you're exporting uploading and you're on to the next so it's it's taking 95 percent of the, the the workload and it's handling it and out of the box it should be better than pretty much everything that you've tried before like outsourcing other ai options everything we are still looking to improve, like sometimes we'll get one image back that comes off uh, or it comes out like not quite right. So we're still looking to obviously improve the data set and to kind of like make it better. But our goal was right out the gate, it's amazing. And by the way, with, with uh, when you outsource, you have to train the outsourcing team. When you use other AI options, you have to train the AI program with thousands of images of your own before it's giving you good results. Oh. This you don't train. Out of the box it comes ready and then from there you can just custom tune based on you know like some of the results with 20 30 images but it's ready to go.
0: Wow. See, and that, thank you for saying that, because that was one of my questions. You know, the the other piece of this is, you know, of course, people are thinking, yeah, this sounds great. I want to try it. How do I, you know, how do I get started with this thing? The business model, what is the business model that you put in place for this? Is it subscription? Is it per image, like, like some of the other companies that we talked about? Or is it one time only fee and you own the software until the next dot release happens? How, do, how have you priced it?
1: It's a it's a per image fee based on just server usage essentially. So everything is processed, um, all the AI is processed in the cloud. So when you edit images, you're basically paying for you know the the servicing of the the usage of the of the server of the resources to edit those images. So it's a per image basis. Uh, we do offer subscriptions that bring the cost per image down. So like as you are editing more, the cost per image goes down. But it's highly affordable. Like it's uh, I believe the baseline no subscription is six cents per image and it goes down to like four cents with uh yeah with your your subscription so like if you're looking at outsourcing typically your image edits are like 20 to 30 cents each so out of the gate it's just like okay you're paying a quarter to one-fifth of the amount that you were paying and you're getting 95 percent edits right out of the gate without any training without worrying about you know And it's really annoying when you get stuff back from like third-party editors and it's not good, you have to send it all back. And that puts another two, three, four day delay into your entire workflow. So it's very cumbersome from like just a management standpoint to constantly deal with that. So that's kind of some of the um, big overarching differences. And one of the reasons that we also want to keep this um, on a per image basis also is we have... Some of the most incredible creatives and artists um, in the develop and in the visual flow preset libraries that are that are basically making their editing styles available to everybody right mm-hmm. so those integrate with AI and so we we want to keep it this way because when you look at the quality of presets and the artists that are developing for develop and visual flow it's above any caliber of any other studio like we're talking. Uh, two man Sam heard, like all the all the awesome creators in this space are making their styles and their editing uh, tools available with impossible things
0: yeah you know i'm I'm part of this this conversation that I wanted to have I wanted to segue it into the just the the market of AI and the fear, uncertainty, and doubt around AI and how it's impacting businesses this is this is one of the ways that AI is impacting, right? It's impacting businesses or machine sure. learning. It's it's impacting these businesses that were doing what your software is doing, um, more efficiently and arguably better than what a team of humans or or an entire company could do. Let's segue into that. Like your thoughts, just yeah. you know, away from impossible things for the most part, but just industry overall. When we talk about artificial intelligence and applying either whether it be machine learning or whole cloth image generation through through systems like Mid Journey or I don't know Leonardo.ai, et cetera. etc. So all these services that are do, that are building things and freaking artists out right so i have several artist friends who yeah. are like you know what? i'm hanging up the towel because that thing can do it better than i can do it so i'm gonna go work at starbucks or something you know and i hear that refrain in the creative space in copywriting and maybe now in this industry as well where why why would i start a business if i had aspirations to do an image processing send me all your stuff and i'll make it better and send it back to you type type business if that's no longer is well i guess the question is are those business or is this is it's a sunset is this the final scene for those types of businesses, because AI and presumably services like Impossible Things are only going to get better and better and better and smarter over time. They're never yes. going to be as dumb as they were in 2023. Let's say that. Right. So right. how do you and how do right you have now, that? Com- already... Yeah. And they're already brilliant. So how do you, how do you yeah. like, what's your take on that whole space and that that line of thinking? So it was about
1: a year ago, um, Prateek, you know, Prateek in the photo yes. Prateek Naik. Prateek Naik. Yeah, we, absolutely. Yeah, we got pretty into um, the AI scene and and we both did a podcast on this together. And then I did a podcast as well with the F-Stoppers, uh, with Patrick Hall on it too. Oh, nice. About a year ago, and, and I think we're kind of all on the same page, but I was saying like, you know, this is the end of the 99% of creative industries like and what i was basically saying was like in in any creative space whether you are a copywriter whether you are a storyteller whether you're a a filmmaker um, a photographer you paint it doesn't matter what it is that you do in every one of these spaces there's one percent of creators that are creating something genuinely unique creating something that is is very like it's not just a technical skill, but it's a combination of of technical and understanding and psychology and everything. They're blending into that 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 thing that just is, it's the 1%, right? The 99% are kind of more the technical creators. They're the ones that necessarily aren't creating anything unique, but they're combining things in maybe a kind of nice way that's professional and you get a good result from it. The 99% are gonna give away their jobs to AI. Like mm-hmm. that is, is is my opinion where this is all going, because and and a year ago I said this, I said the first photographers that are going to feel this are the ones that are basically just providing a commodity. And an example would be like a headshot photographer. Mm-hmm. Well, a week ago I saw the very first like, oh, I'm an AI headshot photographer. So you basically give me an image of you and I'll create, you know, AI versions and you choose the headshot that you like the most. Right. Mm-hmm. So. I'm not saying that's going to replace all of headshot photography. I'm saying that that's going to replace the the 99%, the, the photographers that are out there that don't really have an experience, a product that's like beyond the photograph itself. Like this becomes good enough. It's not that this is better than you. It's that in the eyes of the consumer, this is good enough. Just like mm-hmm. for a, a storyteller, right? I, I can't, I probably can't get AI to get me to Harry Potter, but I probably could get AI to get me to like a a decent story, like a decent creative story that might go into a newspaper. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the vast majority of creative jobs, in my opinion, are going to go to um, AI, especially when those creative jobs are mainly technical oriented. So the safe spaces to me are experiential places. So if you imagine the entire world going towards AI, we're going to be, you know, one of the reasons that one of my uh, one of my side businesses uh, is psychology and human relationships. One of the reason is because I feel that AI and and all this you know more communication or more more technology is preventing us from becoming better humans, better communicators. We're having more relationship issues, more problems interpersonally because we're becoming so dependent on our devices, right? So I'm creating that business. Because that's where I see things going is like, we're going to need more help getting us back to being human. The other side of it too, is if you're in a creative space that is <clears throat> experiential, you're you're a lot more safe because, well, experiential things, in-person things, they can't really be replaced by AI, right? So mm-hmm. if I would identify that as like wedding photography. Wedding photography is primarily an experiential service where like, yes, you're there to create creative work. but by and large, the people that are paying good money for wedding photography, they generally want that they generally want their real moments documented in an artistic way. So that's experiential. Experiential areas are, are safe like that that's what you need to lean into as opposed to like commoditized creative endeavors. So for all the you know shoot edits and the editing companies out there, I would imagine that the smart ones, like the team at shoot.edit, I'm, I'm sure is thinking of this, they're scrambling to figure out well, What we need to do then is build AI into our system so we can bring costs down and then add a in-person element to the, an experiential element to the product that we offer. Like, let's say, let's say we might use AI to get it to 95%, but then our trained editors are going to make it so you don't even have to look at those images again. We're going to do it all and we're going to send it to your clients and they're going to absolutely love them. And if they don't, we'll handle everything. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So so there's still a great opportunity there to like, just shift a little bit. If you're, if you're an outside editor, your job isn't to edit images, your job is to save photographers time. Anytime we think of our, our jobs, anytime we think of our careers as like, you know, I'm a writer. Well, writing can be replaced, but if you are, you know, like going back to the photographer analogy, I'm an editor editing is easy to, to replace with AI. But if you're in the business of saving photographers time, that's a completely different story, right? Mm -hmm. I I would need a a myriad of, of AI tools to do that. And we're long ways away from, from like doing that entirely. So that's kind of where I see things going. If you kind of think of what you do as, as a technical skill, then, then you're in, in trouble. If you think of what you're doing as like a, a value added service that a human, you know, has to do, then you're in a safe place. Yeah,
0: yeah, I 100% agree with everything you said. Um, here, here's another tangent or another take on that is the people that are creating art for the sake of creating art, you know, particularly fantasy type art. Right. Or or, you know, fantastical art or science fiction or something like that. These things that these A.I. diffusion models excel at, you know, creating things that we Mm even know that we wanted with a level of detail that we could never have done by hand for the most part. So those folks, those artists that are creating these, you know, they've made a name for themselves, building these sort of. You know, multi-layered Photoshop documents that are just amazing, and you know, dragons and, and all this stuff that you could now distill down in some ways, you know, not always, but in some ways into a prompt, a finely crafted prompt that can create something and versions of that ad nauseum of that, that idea over and over, those people are like, what do you think about those, those artists, which there are many, many thousands of those kinds of artists out there. So the, for those artists that are listening to this, what would you, what would your advice to those people be? Is it embrace the technology and use it in your own work, stand on the shoulders of giants as it were, or, you know, stamp collecting? Like what, where do you, where do you fall on that? Well,
1: I'm I'm going back to last year where I'm I'm raising the red flag and saying, Warning, like this is me. danger. Like be danger. on the lookout. You are in danger. So I'm I'm in that place. Yeah. Um but look, this is what I would say. Like did you ever play um I used to be really into Magic the Gathering. I don't know if you've played Magic the Gathering. This is twenty some yeah. odd years ago. Yeah. Um it's a fantasy game with um there, there's a lot of games like it, like Pokemon and and all these different card games, right? They're like fantasy card games. You've, ever, you, you've seen those, right? Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Or Yu-Gi-Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, I, I remember one of the things that I really loved about Magic the Gathering was like the artwork on each card, right? But that's one of the things that I loved about it. But why you really play is because of, again, the experience. So this is going back to that experiential nature of like a, a product or a service, right? Magic the Gathering was fun to play with with friends. It was competitive. It was a really well thought out game. But, you know, what was also nice about the cards was that they were artistic too. Well, as soon as AI started coming out, of the, my first thought is like, ho- holy shit. Like any any artist that was once getting paid maybe $100,000 a year to craft artwork for Magic the Gathering is, or any of these, you know, things is, is in danger. And right now, I think version five of of uh, of what is it, Journey, just released. And it's like photorealistic. It's incredible. And you can just, yeah. like you said, you can generate, you know, fantastical pieces of, of work just at a breakneck pace mm-hmm. that is so far beyond the abilities of a human. So every one of those artists that made a living creating the artwork for this card game, they're in jeopardy. And your job is going to be replaced by someone who can make good prompts and it's probably going to be at half the cost. You know, it's just, it's just full time labor for someone to think of, you know, creative prompts, right? Yep. But the card game isn't going to be replaced. And that's where I'm trying to get to in like the speaking of like the experiential nature of things. If you're a creator, you need to be not creating the artwork, but rather creating the card game. And the artwork is a byproduct of that game. So if you are a storyboard artist, it's no longer just about the technical aspect of taking someone else's vision and turning it into a storyboard. That job is going to be a $50,000 a year job that anybody can basically do. It's going to be about, well, now you can use those tools to actually create your own stories. Now you can use those tools to create your own films, your own games, your own, like, this is the experiential nature of everything. And, and I'm excited for it as a consumer, because as Consumer, like, just imagine—you know—the amount of resources that went into creating, like, let's talk about something that's recent, Last of Us, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody
1: watched Last of Us. The amount of resources that went into creating that film are just insane. In ten years, I bet you could do all of it with less than ten people. Wow, ten people yeah. from mm-hmm. start to finish. Like, that's kind of where we're going. And at that point, what it comes down to is and. That'll It'll be really funny to dig this back up 10 years from now and see if that's actually accurate but <laughs> at that point what it comes down to is the ideas right when when the technical ability is shared by everybody it simply comes down to who can create better experiences who has better ideas who can who can take things into a final product because a piece of art by itself is not a, a multi billion dollar card game like magic the gathering it's just a piece of art but if you could take a hundred pieces of art and craft this incredible experience around them, then you have something really special. And that's, that's what I think creative, uh, any creative professional needs to be thinking is like, how can I use these tools to create an entire experience rather than offering like a technical skill?
0: Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. So much to unpack here. I mean, we, we, are going to have to do a, a whole nother discussion just on AI. Cause I mean, there's so much to talk about. One of the things that, and I'll, 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 uh, I'll, What do you call it? Foreshadow that discussion with this with this topic that I want to bring up when we do that. If we do that, Um, the idea of language and the digital divide. Mm -hmm. Right. So if if those that are old enough remember the whole phrase, the digital divide, I don't know, I think it's like 10, 15, 20 years ago. It would still exist. It is an old term, but what it was and what it is, it still exists. What it is, is basically that chasm that exists between the haves and the have nots in this case, people with internet access versus people without internet access and how, you know, people with have almost infinite possibilities of what they can do and who they can communicate with and the people without don't right. now, they just live in that, that existence. So my, the, the direction I want to take this conversation when we continue this is is that world or that idea exacerbated on a language level with with AI particularly things like midjourney and even chat gpt where they require lucid crafted language in order to create the best output. So what happens when, regardless of the language that you're speaking in, you don't speak it correctly, or you're slang, or it's cockney, or whatever, you know, it's, it's yeah. you're not able to articulate into the machine to get the desired result out that becomes your barrier at that point. So I'm curious if, you know, have have we been thinking about that, right? Or does it matter? Is that just a natural Darwinian filter that, Hey, if you're not smart enough to talk to this machine, you ain't got no business talking to this machine or let's teach the machines how to understand these dialects and languages and slang and all that. So they can do reasonable output for the people that may not have a complete command of their particular language. I don't know, you know, top thoughts on no. that before before we end this, like, what are your, what are your, your thoughts? That's,
1: we could definitely go in depth on another one of these. <laughs> yeah, um, I know. So, I, I think like the, in terms of slang and stuff, I think, I think the, mechanics of each of these AIs smart enough to pick up on those pretty quickly. Um, but in terms of like other languages, you know, you'll, you notice like in the programming world, everybody programs in English. It was kind of the, at least as far as I understand, you know, like mm-hmm. if you're a programming in India, if you're in China, if you're in any place, you're doing it in English um, because that's kind of the, for better or worse, just the adopted language that that was used for essentially everything. So I think there is going to be in general, an even bigger push towards that in the short term, right? The short term is like prompts. And most of these language models are going to be probably trained, uh, in English and the, there, there's also kind of like, you know, I, I know there's a, a sort of like, um, I dunno, like a, a race argument to be, to be had here, but mm-hmm. going beyond that for just a second, I actually speak Cantonese and Mandarin. And in those languages what you'll notice when you get deep into those languages that a lot of languages actually don't have the vocabulary to describe things of a very um, intangible nature. Like when you get to fantasy and when you get to like, people talk about how complicated the English language is and how many words are in the English language. That that's not just like, that's not a lie. Like in, in Chinese and Cantonese, most people that I run into, they don't have good enough command of that language to get to the fan the fantasy aspect of it. So while the words might exist, they're not part of the everyday person's vocabulary necessarily. And so so there there is also a practical nature of like which language should you use, because if you're going to design an AI model um, to to be able to incorporate language, then you need to choose a language that has enough vocabulary, enough description to actually give the AI more creative tools with, right? So I, I do think from that lens, um, English is the correct choice in terms of like training. But I also think that whatever language we use is a, is a short-term thing. Like English might be an issue for the next 10 years until Neuralink is available and you've got a chip in your brain and then you can think about, you know, whatever you want. and You've got that, you know, output it right in front of you without saying a word, right? but there's other intermediary solutions. Like um, I could essentially give the uh, AI a little bit of input. Like I can give it a frame of something as reference. Um, So there's a lot of like intermediary steps that you could use to kind of bridge language barriers.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder like that. Yeah, that's a whole different conversation uh, because I think I know I know some cap some Japanese, right? I wouldn't say I'm fluent in Japanese. I speak at maybe a, you know, five or six grader or or five or six year old level. Um, But I can get around in the town. And as I was learning the language, it. You know, one of the things that you learn is you know English is finite. You know, we have this many characters. Was it thirty six? Um, they have this many characters. Um, kanji in Japanese, they have yeah. kanji hiragana and katakana. Right? Kanji is the most mm-hmm. is the most involved. Three thousand characters, and each one means something different. Right? So you're, and in my brain, when I first found that out, I'm like, wow, you could really get detailed on. The thing that you're describing, or the conversation or the story that you're weaving, because you have such so much more resolution, language, linguistic resolution, as it were, right? So wouldn't it make sense for that model to be in a AI or to to take input from from Kanji into mid-journey or chat GPT because you you can be so much more you know resolved. You can have so much more detail in it in your prompt in a smaller amount of space than you could with trying to write it out with A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So I don't so know. So I'd say no, no, <laughs> but okay. Tell me, bring it. Um, Tell me why. Well, so kanji is actually,
1: um, the, the in Chinese, the term is Hanzi okay. That's, that's Chinese. So if mm-hmm. you, if you study Japanese, the origin of kanji, kanji is literally Chinese. So like I can actually go to Japan and I can read, um, if they put in in Ketsukana or the the actual like Japanese alphabet, I can't read it. Mm-hmm. But they'll have signs that use a lot of kanji, and and those I can read because the root is is Chinese for that. So Japanese adopted maybe a few thousand of these uh, of more common words that are basically used in kanji, right? But in kanji, yeah. there's actually like ten thousand plus elements. Oh my jeez. Yeah, yeah, three thousand in is kanji. Is like, yeah. Correct. So there's, there's tons of Chinese words and, and the average person, like if you want to read a newspaper, you need to know about three to 4,000 of these, of these symbols. Right. Um, And it's, it's kind of cool in a way because the symbols they're made of radicals and those radicals, they do have like meanings to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Much like the, the words in English. Like if you were to break them down, like each of those have kind of like coherent, like if you were to break those down, there's an actual reason why it's, coherent you know versus yeah. incoherent and, and each of these right so kanji's made it the same way the, the problem is is like when you when you take a step back and you look at language as like a developmental tool right language is really a developmental tool for our brains when when the language itself when the majority of your brain power of the thought process of the reasoning goes into the language itself it limits your ability to kind of put more resources into thinking on a, uh, I want to say like an intangible or like a a kind of esoteric kind of way. So like if I'm spending 80% of my resources memorizing thousands and thousands of characters and what those characters do and making sure that I understand enough of them, then I'm spending 20% of my time, 20% of my resources thinking in a more creative fashion. So, That's one of the powers of English is that it allows somebody to spend, you know, any alphabetized language. It allows someone to learn the alphabet and then to process words as they learn them and to not focus nearly as much of those limited kind of cognitive resources on just the language itself, but more on expanding my mind, expanding like the way that I think, um, it, it's for this reason that like in a lot of other languages, like when you look at languages on a societal level, the language itself actually dictates a lot of the behavior and the processes of a group of people. Yeah. So, yeah. so from the standpoint of like a prompt, it actually would not be easier to write it. It would be shorter in the sense of like the characters would be more condensed and more packed in, but the cognitive load of that would be far greater.
0: You mean the cognitive load in terms of the number of people that could communicate to that level to get that resolution Correct. out of that model? Yeah, so I, I agree with that 100%. But then the other side of that is you're thinking as an entrepreneur, right? Masses and, you know, we, gotta, we have to reach the most amount of people with this. But what if, what if the conversation is more of an AI arms race type? deal right where the Chinese want to create the best AI ever made so wouldn't they train it on their 10,000 character alphabet to have more resolution than we Americans have with our simplistic alphabet? I don't know like would is, is that yeah. is that flawed thinking or you know in other words, creating an intentional digital divide. Because in order to operate this AI, you need to understand at least 10,000 characters to, to make it do its backflips and do all these things. Anybody who can't will get marginal use out of this AI model. If you can, i.e., you know, arguably the smarter people that have that have memorized the most symbols, you can make this thing do backflips. Anybody that's lower than you cannot. Is that like, does that make sense on a, on an arms race kind of tip versus, you know, this is consumer and egalitarian de- and democratic.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I honestly probably don't know. Um, I, I majored in, in Chinese linguistics, but I, it's, I've been, I'm in the culture and I, and I, I've been in the culture for 20 years. So I, I know the, the, the language to a level of fluency and I understand the, the, the dynamics of it, but maybe not to the extent of like, uh. You know, a, a linguistic professor that's like spent their lives in this area. So I don't know if I'm qualified to say, it, but I, I don't think that that's what you're going to get out of it. And and I don't think even with the AI adopting all the 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 ten thousand plus characters of the Chinese language, I don't think you get to a better model because there's inherent limitations in that language. Like I don't I don't think you've had a chance to kind of see this, but most newer words most newer words in in Chinese are actually uh, derivations of English. So like they'll Mm -hmm. take the English word and do like phonetic versions of that word. Right. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And so like the, the ability to create a new English word, like the, the, the reason the English vocabulary is so large is because anytime there needs to be a new word, people just make up the new word. Mm -hmm. And then within enough Uh, within maybe a year or two that that word gets basically canonized right and it goes into the dictionary that that's not something that really happens in on that kind of breakneck speed in chinese like the 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 characters themselves are historical in nature so i don't generally see like new characters being developed and i'm not saying it doesn't happen it does but usually these newer words they're actually phonetic translations um or like like uh computer for example um, the, the word for that is diana, but that just really means digital brain, right? Mm-hmm. So they'll take historic words and combine them together. It's not digital brain, actually. It's electric brain. So mm-hmm. an electric brain is a computer. Um, the the ability to kind of like, there's just so much more description in the English language. And that's what I'm saying is like, regardless of how you train that model, uh, I think the the language itself, if you if you looked at it from an arms race approach, the language itself would become a limiting factor. In fact, from an arms race approach, I would actually train it in the language that everybody else is using so that I can be up to date and and have the most advanced tools on what everybody else is doing rather than what's happening in my own country. So I would kind of almost avoid Chinese entirely for that reason, because from from a developmental standpoint, from a country, you would, you would want to choose the language
0: that would yield the most benefit. What a great, what a great topic. Yeah. It reminds me of almost like machine learning. Remember back in the way back in the day, zeros and ones, machine learning versus some of these higher level languages that obviate a lot of the, well, all of the zeros and ones that programmers would have to type in. English is analogous to that machine learning where it's it is what it is. It's at that label you can you can describe anything versus oh here's the command that triggers these things that were written in machine code. So yeah, I'm geeking out. So I want to, I know you gotta take off. So let's wrap this up. Um one 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 final question on impossible things and how all that works, and then maybe you can tell us where people can go grab it and all that. But the when you were describing how the the software works within Lightroom to help enhance using AI, as we're talking about, to to enhance Mm -hmm. that image to a sort of a predefined uh, magnificence level. can you dive into a little bit more of what that's doing? Because in, like in the latest version of Lightroom, I know they have this, this concept, I forget what they call it, I know it's not smart presets, but it's the idea where the, the Lightroom can look at an image and intelligently find things in the image like eyes, nose, mouth, and these sort of skin, you know, body skin, all that, and then intelligently apply presets or settings to those areas of the face all in one click. So it's not like oh I made yeah. a mask I made a mask here for the eyes but now on this image the eyes are over here so it fails it will find the eyes everywhere and do the right thing lips nose all that stuff are are you doing are you i e impossible things doing something similar to that or using or leveraging that technology that's already in Lightroom to enhance it with impossible things or are you doing something entirely different like on the preset side like the looks
1: it's a little bit of both so basically. Um, where Lightroom Classic has, where Adobe has basically incorporated new kind of one-click AI-based tools to kind of like enhance, we built those into the interface of impossible things. So as you're running it across thousands of images, you can actually apply those things automatically. What we're doing though, is we're talking about the actual color grade. So we're talking about the way that you color a raw photograph, right? Um, That could go a number of different directions. And people have used presets for this. And the next layer of that is saying, well, let's use the preset as like a look. This is the look that you want to attain. But based on each image that goes into it, well, we need to adjust the white balance. We need to adjust color. We need to adjust HSL because every image is different, right? That's where lighting conditions matter because the greens in a daytime hard light setting where you have direct sunlight those greens look different than the greens where like you're you're shooting like overcast right Mm -hmm. so if i'm trying to get to a specific look then i need the ai to incorporate all those different lighting conditions and all the different scenes that are affecting color so basically you choose a look that's the preset Um, it could be one of your own it could be one from the develop library from the visual flow library any of those Um, And then from there, it's going to basically run it through AI to see, okay, what do I need to do based on, um, you know, is the photographer using multiple cameras like like oftentimes on a wedding? This is our our case study. Our our audience is wedding and photographers that are shooting a lot of images. Right. Because you might have two or three shooters that are each using different cameras. Well, this is going to camera match. You might be one person's working um, in a daytime location, like outside the other person's inside with the groom. So you're, you're having to like edit based on scenes. And so this is, again, where the AI, you know, is going to do. And then we're talking like volume of images. So what this is going to do is color grade using AI, using what's going on in the scene and then it's going to incorporate whatever, you know, Adobe's tools that they give to us. It, we have basically menu options where they can turn on like scene enhancements and different mm-hmm. things that are based on the AI tools that Adobe's building in. Um, so this is this is designed to take the brunt of the workload in terms of color grading, which is if a photographer is going to spend 20 hours editing, you know, 1000 photographs from a wedding, the 18-19 of those hours is going to be spent just coloring, like applying a preset, getting the white balance, getting the contrast, getting the HSL, going to the next image, doing the same thing, synchronizing it and going through that set. This is that workload. So the individual like attention that you want to give to an image, like doing a little bit of enhancements and retouching that you'd still do. You'd still create your signature edits and whatnot, but we can eliminate the majority, the the 90, 95% of just like the the rote doing the same stuff over like a robot type stuff. I love it, yeah,
0: which is what it's for. Well, let, let's wrap this up. So the where can people go to to check this out and play around with it? And I know um, you've got a promo going on right now for for some free edits. Can you describe that? So people can yes. kind of put their toe in the water on it?
1: So go to things.co is the website and there's 500 free edits. So any new account gets 500 edits that you guys can start playing with, start trying out different looks, different presets could be your own, all that kind of stuff. Um, And then, yeah, from there, you can decide
0: what you'd like to do. Awesome. Very cool, man. Thank you so much for for doing this. Uh, And again, I'm going to I'm going to put you on the hot seat and have you come back on and maybe do a roundtable discussion with me and a couple of other people just to, you know, sort of get to the bottom of the current state. You know which will change the day after that but the current state of how ai is is affecting uh photographers and what they can do and what they should be looking out for and all that so yeah and this this, this your software congratulations on it you know the, the impossible you. things because it's like I said, it's one of those those technologies that does what technology is supposed to do, i.e. make your life easier in the photography world. We're always looking for ways to get back behind the camera. Right. And take more totally. pictures and have more fun in front of a computer. Right. Versus, OK, time to make the donuts. Oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. Yeah. That's this true. is I see your tech as wouldn't it be great if ellipsis Right. That's, <laughs> you know, inter someone exactly. could just do all this for me better than I could do it. That would be great. All right, uh, we'll leave it right exactly. there. Things.co, PyJersa, thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate you. I
1: appreciate you, Fredic. Can't wait for the next roundtable. That'll be fun.
0: Oh, yeah. We'll knock it out. Take care, man. Have a great week. This is Twitter.